Let's take our Bibles now, and if you'll open them to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And several times as we've uh, gone into our lessons in this epistle, I've mentioned how that John approaches the subject matter here in this epistle in a very no-nonsense style. That is very direct. He, he doesn't mince words. He, he doesn't dance around doctrine, uh, afraid that he's going to offend someone. In the first century, there needed to be a, a very clear, concise statement of doctrine. And that needed to be done because churches were thus, just then being formed. A practice was then being established. The foundation of the church was, being, was set then. Uh, and for the entire existence of the church, the things that were laid down here in the New Testament uh, taught by Jesus and the apostles would become the, the form of practice and what we do uh, ever since that time. Uh, this was not really a time to be very delicate. It wasn't a time to be accommodating. Uh, the lines had to be very clearly drawn between uh, the difference of, of truth and error. And that, that difference between those two had to be glaring. I mean, it had to be so obvious, and, and it should be still so obvious today, that when a false doctrine rears its ugly head, that we're very quickly able to denounce that and then to lead people in the direction that they need to go. And for that reason, the Bible is very clear about things such as who Jesus is. And that's one of the things that John talks about in this epistle. There's no mistaking his claims that he is God. And the demonstrations of power that we've seen in our Sunday morning series in the Gospel of Matthew prove that Jesus is God. And then again, of course, those many statements that he made himself. And likewise, we have here in First John this continual teaching about who true believers are. What are their characteristics? And how, how can you tell a true Christian from a false one? And here John very clearly states these doctrines to us. First of all, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And then he moves on into these arguments of, of the proof of real Christianity. And so he proposes tests by which true believers can be found out, which ones are true and which ones are not. And so continually, it's John's purpose here to separate truth from error. And he's very straightforward with that uh, in affirming the difference between the two. And he does this by underscoring the true and at the same time denying the false. Now, sometimes preachers don't have too much trouble underscoring the truth. And, and they want to spend their time uh, preaching the truth, of course. But many times preachers are afraid to do the second part of this. And that is that they don't want to identify purveyors of false doctrine. Uh, they don't want to talk about uh, the errors that people have fallen into and really just get down and tell what these things are and refute that false doctrine. Now, much of the time when people come to Berean Baptist Church, they'll find me doing the second part of this. Uh, they come at a time when I'm preaching on the errors of some group and I'm denying what they teach, and that can be uncomfortable for some people. But the lines between truth and error have become so, so blurred today that people are led into a false comfort zone and, and we've come to the place that, that we accommodate. And I, when I say we, I'm using it very generically because we don't do that here. But, but Christianity in general, what we call Christianity, has come to the place that it accommodates uh, anything that anybody believes as long as they tack the title Christian onto it. 
Now, what we try to do here in Berean is to go back to these foundational truths that we find here in the Word of God, go back to the beginning of the church and be very adamant about the difference between truth and error. And we do that because we don't want anyone to mistake what we believe. I'm I'm really not interested in making anybody uh, feel safe and secure in some aberrant teaching that they've grown up in, and it's not the true teaching of uh, of the church, and it's it's, it's the wrong revelation, or they think that they have a revelation of truth when they don't have. So we look at things, we look at doctrines, and if they don't line up perfectly with the Bible, we reject them immediately. And that's because the Bible itself is the straight edge by which all crooked lines are judged. Uh, Recently, there was a young man who stopped by my office in the afternoon, and he told me that he was uh, looking for a church that was very conservative. He was looking for a church that taught straight from the Bible. And he said, I really don't care what the name on the sign out front is, Uh, because most churches, there's basically no difference between them. There's no difference in the denominations. Well, I listened politely to him, and I thought that uh, I knew what he was looking for. And, uh, but I couldn't help to comment on that, on that statement that he made, that the sign out front uh, you know, doesn't make a difference, that, that, and let that statement go unchallenged. I mean, you know me on that. Uh, so I told him that uh, we're Baptist. And when people come into our church, what they're going to get is Baptist doctrine. And we make no apologies for teaching what Baptists have believed all the way back through the centuries. And I told him that he was right in one sense, that the sign out front on a church doesn't always tell you what's going on the inside. inside. Didn't always tell the whole story uh, because there are many Baptist churches that are different from us. We are still preaching what Baptists have historically believed. We, we like to call ourselves historical Baptists, and we're conservative in the sense that we stick as closely to the truths of the Bible as we can, and that's what true churches have done. When I say as we can, as the Holy Spirit leads us and reveals that truth to us, we're going to follow him. So we make no apologies for that, and we're not going to enlarge our gates to accept what anybody believes for whatever reason they might believe it. So as we look at this part of the Scripture, this is really the approach that that John takes, and we've seen it as we've gone through the study. He doesn't mellow out here, and he's relentless in exposing lies and affirming truth, and he has different ways of doing it. He attacks it from different angles, but he never gives up that essential difference between truth and error and between false Christianity and true Christianity. And the contrast that we'll see in this section is righteousness pitted against unrighteousness. Or if we were to put it strictly in the terms that John uses, righteousness against sin. Or we could even say righteousness against lawlessness. A true Christian can't have both. Righteousness and and sin are diametrically opposed. And John doesn't state it once here. There are two parallel sets of verses in this section that emphasize the same truth. Verses 4 through 7 state the doctrine, and then verses 8 through 10 reaffirm that same doctrine, only saying it in a little bit different way. Now, if you'll look here in 1 John chapter 3, we'll we'll see what we're we're talking about here. Verse number 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. 
Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now you probably already noticed that there are some troubling statements that are made here. And how are we going to sort that out? How are we going to figure it out? Well, I'm not going to be able to do it all tonight. We're just going to get started in this. Uh, So before we we go on with the message, I want to stop here and and show you these parallel statements. I put them on your listening sheet in a table so that you could see these side by side. And my thanks to John Stott for pointing this out. This is actually the the table that he has in in his book on 1 John. So we just reproduced it here so you could look at it. Uh, The the introductory phrase of verses 4 through 7 is, Whosoever committeth sin. In the second section, verses 8 through 10, it is he that committeth sin. The theme that we're talking about here in the verses 4 through 7 is sin is lawlessness. In verses 8 through 10, the origin of sin is the devil. And then the purpose of Christ appearing is stated in verses 4 through 7 as to take our sins away. And in verses 8 through 10, to destroy the works of the devil. And the logical conclusion of these two statements, or these two parallel tracks, are that no one abides in him that keeps sinning, that's verses 4 through 7, and no one born of God continues in sin, verses 8 through 10. So you can see we're running along a parallel track here. John states the doctrine, turns right around and states it in another way. So the same truth is taught, there's a repetition of it, and that's so there will be no mistaking the intent. I don't think you could miss it if he stated it once, and you surely can't miss it when he states it twice in rapid succession. And this is extremely important for us today in light of the half-gospel or the missed gospel, you might say, among evangelical churches today. This section is about sin and a person that claims to be a Christian. And John is very clear about this, that... How a person lives is a definite indication of his Christianity. And yet for all the clearness of the way that John states it here, it is denied by many supposedly fundamental churches. I've mentioned before that one of the past editors of a fundamental Baptist paper, one that's that's well-known, says that it is possible, or this is what he said, he's dead now, but the paper hasn't refuted his statements. But he said that it's possible to be a Christian and not be a disciple of Christ. And his meaning uh, to that is that a person can affirm to be saved and yet not live a Christian life. That he can be saved and never claim that Jesus is the Lord of his life. Now what's at issue here, this is really uh, the center of the Lordship Salvation Controversy. 
Now, I want to give you some uh, three amazing statements that were made by some who agree with this fundamental Baptist paper. And I've taken these statements from John MacArthur, who, who wrote one of the best books that I've ever seen on this subject, and I highly recommend it to each of you. Uh, he wrote a book entitled The Gospel According to Jesus Christ. And that's kind of like his flagship book. He's written many, many books, but that's the one that stands out above all the others, the one that's the most controversial because of his statements about salvation and the disagreement that people have with him on that. And then MacArthur followed up that book with another one uh, called The Gospel According to the Apostles. And in that book, he again takes on the lordship salvation controversy. And he lists some amazing statements that are made. And I'm not going to read all of those to you, but I picked out three that he mentions here. And they're, they're really, when you read these, I, I think you'll be astounded what some people believe on this issue. The first one is this, and, and, the, and the lordship controversy, let me, let me just state that again. It's the idea that a person uh, must receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ must be the Lord of his life. And those who are opposed to that say that you don't have to really receive Christ as Lord in order to be a Christian. You just need to receive him as your Savior. Now, here, here are some statements that are made in three of these statements. The first one is, faith may not last. It is a gift of God, but it might not last. A true Christian can completely cease believing and therefore can commit the ongoing great sin of willful unbelief and still be a Christian. The second statement is, Christians may fall into a state of lifelong carnality, born-again people who continuously live like the unsaved. The third statement Disobedience and prolonged sin are no reason to doubt one's salvation. Now, those are bad enough, but there's some ones that are even worse than this, and it goes downhill from this point to the place that uh, some say that repentance from sin is not even really necessary for salvation. Now, I don't think that the editor of the Baptist paper that I mentioned would agree with that, but what he did do was to redefine repentance stating that repentance is nothing more than a change from unbelief to belief. In other words, the result of that is, the, the result is, the only sin that you really need to repent of is unbelief. Now, that is a half gospel, and it's really not even a gospel at all because it makes faith and repentance the same. And if you don't believe that salvation actually produces a change in a person's life, then this is what you have to do. You have to redefine repentance. And you have to make it say that a person can perpetually live in sin and still be a Christian. And if you're going to say that, then you have to give an unbiblical definition to repentance. Now, it, it, it's the reason why that there are many, and these are the same people who deny the doctrine of perseverance. And uh, you can't have a doctrine that says that a Christian has to persevere in the faith and at the same time tell them that they can perpetually, that, or that perpetual carnality is possible for a Christian. You can't have those two doctrines together. And so they're naturally going to have to deny the perseverance of the saints. But that is the approach of many ministries today. They... they um, offer an easy believism to people so that uh, potential converts are just told all you need to do is walk, raise your hand, walk down the aisle, sign the card, and you're good to go. Uh, a decision is made, and it doesn't really have to be a decision that makes a real difference in the way that you live, 
doesn't make any difference there. You just claim that you know Christ as Savior. You're declared to be saved, and then your name goes on the tally sheet. And that's what you get when you believe that salvation is nothing more than a decision based upon some assent to the fact, uh, a mental assent to the facts of the gospel, and it's not motivated solely by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit effectually drawing that sinner to Christ. Now, as our historic confession of faith says, the Holy Spirit secures our voluntary obedience to the gospel. That means that the Holy Spirit is at work causing us to actually believe when the, when the Holy Spirit, when God calls us to salvation. And so if the Holy Spirit is actually at work in, in conversion, the result of that is that you could never have a carnal Christian. The Holy Spirit does not produce hybrid converts. And so you're not going to get a Christian that lives like there was nothing that ever happened to him. Now, I would maintain with John that is impossible. And in these few verses that we've read, John affirms the impossibility of it. Or if you want to state it the other way around, he denies the possibility of it. So contrary then to the preacher who says that you can be a Christian without being a disciple, I would have to go with John on this and agree with him in what he says in verse number 6, that these people have not seen him and they do not know him. So you've got your table there, and we're going to break this section down according to the table so that we can draw out these truths and understand what these statements mean. Uh, Most of you have been here for our previous studies, and you know, uh, once again, that we're talking about tests for discipleship, and these are tests that prove whether a person is really in the faith, and one of those core proofs is obedience. It's the moral test of obeying Christ's commands. So in the previous messages, we were uh, talking about uh, holiness and how that relates to the moral test. And the same theme, uh, same theme is continued here, uh, only the argument for the moral test is made on a different basis. In the second chapter, verse number 28, down through chapter 3, verse number 3, the argument is made that, that we live in holiness because we understand that Christ is going to return. And so it's living in holiness in light of Christ's return. That's a strong incentive for us to live a holy life. Now, in this part, John is still dealing, still dealing with that moral test, only it's not based here upon the second coming of Christ. It's based upon the first appearing of Christ and what Christ did on the cross. And verse number 5 shows this to us, that Christ was manifested. That's his first coming. Christ was manifested to take away our sins. Now, when you go down to verse number 11, you'll find, John, we're going off on a different direction there on another course, and and there Christians are being judged by the social test, and that's our love for other Christians. So you always have to keep this in mind when you're reading 1 John, that you have this, this, this going on in John's arguments over and over again as John is weaving his way through these tests, and they're very clear cut, they're very black and white, they are affirmations of truths and denials of untruths. Now, we're going to look at this and see how this section breaks down. Tonight, we're going to spend all of our time on the first point here. Three messages to get through this. And the first one is the nature of sin. The nature of sin. What is sin? And we have two statements in these verses that help us to identify it and to define it. 
Verse number 4 says that sin is the transgression of the law. And verse number 8 says that sin is of the devil. In other words, the devil is the originator of sin. And so the first statement links sin to the law of God, and the second statement links it to the enemy of God, which is the devil. Now we're going to look first of all at the connection to the law. And here we see that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is against the law. Sin, as it says here, is the transgression of the law. And that's a great definition. It's a very clear definition. When you commit a sin, you are transgressing God's law. And when you break man's law, when man's law coincides with God's law, when you break man's law, you're also breaking God's law. But the definition that we have here in our King James Version really doesn't tell us the whole story. We have to look at this a little bit more deeply than just thinking about sin in terms of the Mosaic Law. Now, sometimes when we see law in Scripture, that's all that we think about. We think about those Old Testament laws that were codified by Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai. He had the tablets with the Ten Commandments and all those uh, ceremonial laws that God God had given him. And uh, it... That's usually all that we think about. Sin is the transgression of that law. And if that's all that we think about, then we would think that the law is actually what makes us sinners. If God hadn't given us a law, then there would be no sin. Well, of course, John's thinking is deeper than that. You know that. You know that's not true. And so he doesn't have in mind here particularly the Mosaic Law, even though that's included in this. But what he has in mind in this statement is the spirit of the law. Sin is lawlessness. It's a spirit of lawlessness that resides in the heart of every single person. And John agrees perfectly with Paul. Paul said, for until the law, sin was in the world. Now, when you get a chance, read Romans chapter 5, and there Paul proves that sin was in the world before the giving of the law, and his line of proof is that because death was in the world, then sin was in the world. Death, of course, is the result of sin, and so if people die, and they died before the law, of course they did, then it must mean that uh, sin was in the world before the giving of the law. So people were lawless before the law, if that makes sense to you. And so he proves this, that fundamentally uh, the sin is a spirit of being against God. Lawlessness is the essence of sin, not the cause of it. Now why is that so important for us to understand? Well, there, there are people that want to redefine sin in innocuous terms. And so you often hear people say, well, sin is just a mistake. It doesn't mean that I'm lawless, and it doesn't mean that I'm really against God. I've just made a mistake. And others say, well, well, sin is a part of my personality. I, I have a personality disorder. And that's really basically what social engineers believe. No one is really responsible for their sin because there's something that's external at fault. I had a bad childhood. I was raised in a bad environment and such things as that. And so they come up with ideas like this. Leave no child behind. Let's educate them. Takes a village to raise a child. Redistribute wealth so that everybody has an equal chance. And if we can do that, we can cure people of their bad behavior. And so nobody really sins. They just have certain disorders that need to be corrected. Now, John doesn't suffer from such a delusion. Sin is lawlessness. It's not merely failure. Then secondly, sin is active disobedience. It's willful disobedience. And just to prove that point, all that you have to do is look at the very first sin that was committed. 
Nobody could claim that the environment was the cause for the first sin that was committed. A bad childhood certainly couldn't have been the cause because Adam and Eve weren't children. Um, so th- their, their disobedience against God wasn't simply a mistake. It was willful disobedience. It was active rebellion against the revealed word, revealed will of God. And that is what all of us want. We want our way instead of God's way. And sin can be pinpointed right there. There is the root. I mean, that's all of it right there. We want what we want and not what God wants. Isaiah says says it as succinctly as as John does in Isaiah 53, verse 6. He said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so when John says sin is the transgression of the law, he means that sin is when you turn your own way. It's active disobedience against God. Now, do you see how John's going to develop this so we can know which persons are Christians and which are not? Because if a person has a continual desire to go his own way, if that doesn't change, if that doesn't change, then, then what's different about him? If he never stops going his own way, what makes that person any different from any person that was ever born? And he's going to develop that part as he goes into Christ's death. Did Christ's death actually change anything? And if it didn't, then why did he die? You see how preposterous it would be to say that a Christian, a person can be a Christian and not be a disciple of Christ. Do Christians still go their own way? Well, no. Jesus said, follow me. A Christian follows Christ. He's not going his own way any longer. Now, John backs that up by taking another run at this, by linking sin to God's enemy, the devil. So the first approach to sin is on the basis of relationship to the law, and the second one is the relationship to the devil. So thirdly, sin is the character of the devil. Verse number 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Now the beginning here means from the first time that the devil sinned. His first act of rebellion turned into continuous acts of rebellion. The devil doesn't stop sinning. And so those who don't stop sinning must have the character of the devil. And Jesus pointed that out when he was dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees. He told them the devil was a liar from the beginning, and the devil continues to lie. And so therefore, if the Jews keep lying about who Jesus is, and they keep in their minds that this self-righteous system that they live by, and they tell people they must live by the same system, then they're following the character of the devil. It's a lie. And the conclusion of it is, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Now, since they are of the devil, then they'll continue to do his works. So you slide that logical conclusion into John's epistle, and you can see why John says that those who continually commit sin are of the devil. Jesus already made that connection. John recorded it in the Gospel of John. So we would expect him to bring that argument here, transfer it right here into this epistle, because it came directly from Christ. Now let me go back to one of those quotes I gave you earlier against lordship salvation. Christians may fall into a state of lifelong carnality, born-again people who continuously live like the unsaved. I would say that a person who said that is calling both Christ and John liars. He denies the scripture... Because the only conclusion that you can draw from a person's life who keeps on sinning is that that person never knew Christ. 
He's a child of the devil, and he proves it by continuing to do the works of the devil. That's precisely what both Christ and John said. Now, there's another uh, salient point here that needs to be made about sin in relation to this. The fourth statement is, sin is never harmless. Now, when, when John connects sin to the devil, the obvious conclusion would be sin cannot be harmless. And yet, that's often the, the tack that people take when they defend their devices. So what if I do this? I'm not really hurting anybody. And it's easy for us to fall into that trap when the effects of sin might not show up immediately. See, the devil is sly enough to make us think that sin is actually beneficial. Remember what he told Eve? He said to her, you're going to get a great benefit from eating of this tree. You're going to be like God. And so the devil makes us think that there are benefits to sin. A businessman weighs this thing out and he, and he cheats on his taxes. He doesn't report all of his income because he sees a benefit from it. A student in school cheats on a test because he sees a benefit from it. Who's it going to hurt? Who does it really bother? And so what we do then is we break sin down into all these little pieces and we judge them based upon their immediate result. So we minimize sin and we trivialize sin that way. And people do it enough and do it so often that they finally convince themselves that they're really not too bad after all. And their proof of it is, I really don't commit the big ones. I don't do the big sins. I never killed anybody. I never stole from anybody. I never robbed any banks. I never, I never, I never, I never. And I'm reminded of David when he numbered the children of Israel. And you would think, what was the harm? What's wrong with counting heads? But it was serious enough to God that 70,000 people died because David did it. He disobeyed God. And you see how that relates to what I said earlier? Sin is when I want my way instead of God's way. And what I like to do is I like to judge sin all by myself. I like to be the determiner of what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. I'm the judge of whether the sin is against God. Well, how did you ever obtain that right? I mean, whoever made you the judge of this? How can man possibly weigh one sin against another? But it goes on everywhere. And society has decided to go its own own way. And so you have a, a multitude of vices that suddenly become inconsequential. And so we legalize whatever we want to legalize because we are the judges between right and wrong. And what we have determined is that sin is not really harmless after all. If it doesn't kill anybody, what's the harm? And sometimes if it does kill somebody, it's really not too harmful. Now, what John does here is he connects the dots. Sin connects to the devil. No matter what sin that you're talking about, whether you think you've got a little innocuous sin or whatever it is, or a great big sin, it all connects to the devil. And so what he does here, he, he connects it to the vilest creature conceivable. He connects it to the character of the devil that no one can adequately describe his filthiness. You connect it to the one who gleefully maims and infects and with disease and torture. Uh, connect it to the one who would gut your children if it was to his advantage. Connect it to the rapist and the child molesters and the serial killers. Connect it to a guy that would flay your mother alive. Connect it to the one that beat Christ into a bloody mess. Connect it to that foul character and then say, Oh, it's harmless. It really doesn't matter after all. What's this little sin going to hurt? You see what John does? Sin links to God's enemy. And so what you do, you just keep clicking on the links. 
You follow all the little links, and where you end up always is at the feet of Satan. And so now you tell me that sin is harmless. And tell me that a person could live in sin and still be a child of God. Now, I'm not saying that sin makes a child of God no longer a child of God. I'm saying that a child of God is not going to live in sin. It's not his character. So, uh, if it was, it'd be like God taking the devil up in his arms and coddling and kissing him. You can't follow the devil and follow God at the same time. So, how utterly preposterous it is for a person to say that a Christian, a person can be saved and be a Christian and not be a disciple. You can be a Christian and live in sin. You can be a Christian and Christ has never made one bit of difference in your life. So they raise their hands, they walk the aisle, they walk down, they sign the card, they stamp it, signed, sealed, and delivered, you're on your way to heaven. And then they tell you, and they write it in their papers, Christians aren't required to persevere, so what you can do, you can spit on Jesus with your life if you want to, and all is well, because you got the preacher's approval. Now, folks, I'm going to stand against that kind of teaching. Uh, When you understand the opponents of lordship salvation, you're going to run away as far from that as you can get. Don't let them tell you, well, you're talking about a work salvation. Actually, works have nothing to do with this in that sense. This is not about justification, unless you mean it like James said it when he was talking about justification in the sight of men. This is not about being justified from your sins. We're talking here about the doctrine of sanctification. And sanctification is a promise for every single believer as much as justification is, as much as glorification is. We've been saved to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if we're not getting there, if we're not going there, if not, we're not approaching there, then we never knew Christ. Now, it's amazing uh, that these folks also say that we have been predestined to sanctification, but we have not been predestined to salvation And in their belief that you are predestined to sanctification, they at the same time say, you may never even get there at all. A Christian might not even get there. He can be saved, he can stay in sin for the rest of his life. It's amazing. And it doesn't come from the Bible. Now this is very clear, and John is clear about it. The argument starts from the angle of knowing what sin is and what sin does. It's related to the law. It's related to God's greatest enemy. And in the next part, John is going to move on in to Christ's sacrifice for sin. And we're going to move right along with him in next week's message. And then he's going to go from there into the habit of sin. And that's where I get the title for the message. Old habits die hard, folks, but they do die. If you're a Christian, they will die because you have the conquering power of Christ in you. Now, how do I know that? Well, we'll get a little bit of a preview. Look over in chapter 5, verse 4, and it says there, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And so if you can't overcome the world, you haven't seen him and you don't know him. And if he's in you, you will. You will be saved and you will be a disciple because according to John, those are the same thing. Saved means disciple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word tonight. And Lord, uh, uh, how we need to bring out the truths of your word and be very clear about this, even as the Apostle John is clear, that if a person claims to be a Christian and yet there is no change in his life, a change that's been brought about by regeneration, by the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us and, and giving us a new nature, 
If that hasn't happened and a person still lives in sin, then they have no right to claim that they are a true believer in you. You change people that you save. Help us to see that, Lord. And I pray that that evidence might be in the life of every single person here tonight who claims to know you as Savior. Bless as we sing and as we go our way tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.